let's just stay in a posture of prayer as a church. Let's just turn our eyes upon Jesus. And we just sang a song about speaking Jesus over our families, over our community, over our church. So let's just do that now. You don't have to say it out loud, but I want you just to meditate on Christ and just see him as the king over our city, the king over our church, the king over our family. There are a lot of hurting people in this community, some of which you know, people who are struggling with anxiety, depression, addictions, broken relationships, fear. So let's pray for those people. As God brings people to mind, just lift them up to the Lord. Ask for God's grace and his mercy to be available to them. not the only church doing church right now. So let's pray for the churches in our city. Let's pray that they would be filled with people who are seeking after the Lord and that they would be unified in worship and praise of exalting Jesus together, that we would be the church that God wants us to be in Great Falls and our surrounding areas. Let's pray for those churches. also pray specifically for pastors. Just that God would anoint them with His Holy Spirit. That they would be faithful to preach the Word. That they would do so with power and authority and anointing of the Holy Spirit. And that the Word, the Gospel would be proclaimed that people would respond. Let's pray for our pastors in our community. If the Lord brings any pastors to mind, just lift them up to the Lord. And let's pray for them today. So Father, we come together as a church in the name of Jesus. And we speak your name over our church, over our city, over our families, even over our state and our world. We pray, Lord, that you'd be the king over our hearts and over every heart. We pray for those who are broken, who are hurting, who are fearful, who are sick, who have need. We pray for them, Lord that your grace and your mercy and your spirit would be abundant to them in this moment. Help them know they can come to you. And God, we pray for the church in Great Falls. We pray, God, that they would be, that we as a church would be passionate about your name, focused on the mission and the vision that you have for your body of believers. 
and we'd love one another as you've loved us and that we'd be united in that love. And we pray, God, for the pastors that are speaking even now. We pray, Lord, that you'd anoint them with your Holy Spirit and that they'd be faithful to proclaim your gospel, the hope of Jesus Christ into our world. And we pray, Lord, that people would hear that gospel message and come to you and humble themselves before you. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, thanks, you guys. Have a seat. Thank you, Bob. Well, I'm going to set this off here. Yeah. going to go with the paper notes today. Well, welcome to Harvest Springs. As, uh, as some of you guys know, we uh, started a message series just a couple, uh, well, a week ago, last week, entitled House of Prayer. And we talked about last week that there's a reason why when Jesus said, my house should be house of prayer, that he uses that word prayer because it is his vision for what the church should be about, what his house should be about, that we should be a house of prayer. He could have used a lot of other words, couldn't he? He could have said, my house shall be a house of preaching. My house should be a house of teaching. My house should be a house of fellowship. My house shall be a house of singing. We, I mean, we could, we could uh, insert all kinds of words there, but he doesn't use those words. He says prayer. Now, again, I want to be very careful that I, I don't give you the impression that, you know, singing or preaching or teaching isn't important or valuable. Um, it is, but it's all in this context of prayer. And we'll talk about why uh, prayer is bigger than just folding our hands, bowing our heads, closing our eyes, and asking God for stuff. Prayer is bigger than that. It includes that, but it's more than that as well. We're going to get in that today. Now, I feel a little weird in preaching on prayer because to be quite honest with you, prayer is not a strength for me. I'm not great at prayer. I wish I was. I have struggled with kind of being consistent and regular in my prayer life for almost my entire Christian life. It's been, it's been one of those things that I've fought with like, I want to pray. I really do. I have a vision for prayer in my life. I have, many times I have the intention of praying, but I just miss it. In fact, just uh, a couple weeks ago, I had scheduled some time of prayer into my uh, early morning on Tuesday. And uh, as I was, I'd kind of blocked out this time for time alone with God. When I got into it, all of a sudden an urgent thing that I'd kind of forgotten I needed to get done. Uh, I jumped in and kind of started to do it. And uh, I thought, I'll get it off my mind, right? Because if I don't do it now, I'm going to be thinking about it this whole prayer time. It's going to be a distraction. I'll go pray uh, afterwards. And then I went and did that thing, and I never came back to pray. And afterwards, I was so frustrated with myself. I was like, I knew that was going to happen. I knew I should have just let it go. And that happens to me often. I intend to pray, and then I don't. I talk sometimes, and I like to give people the impression that I pray. I'll say things like, I'm praying for you, right? 
Or when a, a, an urgent need comes down and it comes in a text thread, I'll throw the praying hands emoji in there every once in a while. But very, very rarely do I follow through by taking that need up before the Lord. I say, I'm praying for you, but really I use that phrase much more like, a, oh, I'm thinking of you, I'm caring for you, you know, just know that I, I heard your need and I'm aware of it. And I don't treat it as I'm going to take your need before God's throne and ask him to act on your behalf. And so to be quite honest with you, I've uh, I probably lied a lot about my prayer. I've given people the impression that I'm praying for them when I haven't or I'm not. Now, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I'm not alone in this. I'm not happy about this. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand and say, hey, who's done this? But I'm pretty sure we've probably all done it where we say, I'm praying for you, but then we didn't really pray. We didn't really go ask God. Uh, I'm pretty sure that this is a common denominator amongst us that we want to be better at praying, but we're not. How many of you guys would just say, I wish I was better at prayer? Let's just take a, a straw poll here. I wish I was better at prayer. Okay? If you just paid attention, that's pretty much all of us. We're all in the same boat. We want to be better at prayer. So today I'd, I'd like to talk about how do we become people of prayer? How do we let our lives become houses of prayer? Because we, we as a church will never be a house of prayer if we're not people of prayer. Are we, are we in agreement with this? Right? God's house will never be a house of prayer if his people aren't praying. It requires us to pray. So if we're going to fulfill Jesus' vision for his church and the mission that he's given us, we've got to be people who pray. So that's what we're going to wrestle with. My life is a house of prayer. You'll understand why I've worded it that way here in a moment. But before, before we uh, get there, I want to start by reviewing something that I said last week. Last week, again, the message was about God's house uh, and the vision that God has for his house. We talked about the tabernacle. We talked about the tent of meeting. We talked about the temple. Last week in the message, the key point that I pushed out for us was that God's house was a meeting place between God and man. God's house was the place that facilitated mankind's need for God and God's desire to be in relationship with mankind. But because of our sinfulness and the brokenness of our relationship, we need something to help facilitate that meeting. And the tent of meeting, the tabernacle of meeting, the temple of meeting, uh, all of that was part of, it was God's idea for how we would then meet together. So the house of God was a meeting place between God and man. And just because, right, the, the original tiny little tent of meeting where Moses would go out to, right, they called it the tent of meeting. Then they built the larger mobile tabernacle uh, that would facilitate the priests and the offerings and all that kind of stuff. That came next. And then, just, then they transitioned from that mobile structure to a permanent location. Just because there were different kind of structures used, the mission remained the same. Connect. With God. Now, this is why Jesus in Matthew 21 
got so upset when he arrived at the temple. So let's just jump there. Matthew chapter 21, we refer to this. This is where we get the house of prayer message series. In verses 12 and 13, it says this. Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, this is verse 13, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Okay, this is the context. Jesus goes into the temple and he rebukes those who are doing stuff, pushes them, kicks them out of the temple, says, get out of here, this is not what we're about. And he rebukes them very strongly that this is what we are to be about, house of prayer, and you have made it a what? A den of thieves or a den of robbers. <clears throat> now, when I heard this story as a kid, I was given the impression that Jesus was upset because business transactions were taking place inside of the temple. There were things being bought and sold. And so uh, when I was growing up, you know, if a church had a bookstore inside of, of their church, oh, that was bad, right? And, uh, you know, some of the people that were, you know, in my churches growing up would have, they would have come and rebuked us for having a coffee shop out in the lobby. The idea here that Jesus was just upset because there were business transactions going on inside the church is, is really a, a, a simplification of what actually was happening, and you miss the point. What Jesus was addressing here was that they had gotten off mission, and we know this because Jesus uh, addresses very specific things inside the temple. Notice what he does. It says in verse 12, he drove out all who bought and sold in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now, what is he actually confronting here? Now, what was happening inside the temple, remember, is a connection between God and man. People would travel from all over Israel and even outside of Israel. If you were a, a Jewish person, if you were an Israelite, you would be required to come to the temple, and it was at the temple where you would connect with God. It was at the temple where you'd uh, give your offerings. It was at the temple where there'd be sacrifices made because of your sinfulness and the brokenness of your life. If there was, you know, uncleanness in your life, it was at the temple that you would go, and there was processes to help restore and, and bring you back into a, a place of rightness with God. And so the temple, again, was facilitating the connection between God and man. So oftentimes when people would travel, they would have to bring an offering. Many times uh, a poor person would have to bring just like a pigeon. Now, I don't know if you've ever traveled a long distance with a bird, but birds don't travel well. I'm guessing it's really hard to keep them alive while you're traveling, you know, on the back of a donkey. Where do you put it? You know, put it in a backpack somewhere or you know, it's just difficult. So what people would often do then is they would just take money and they would travel to Jerusalem. And then when they would get there, they'd buy a bird. So oftentimes maybe they're walking into town. There's a boy on the side of the road and he's got some 
pigeons that he'd sell as part of his business and kind of livelihood. And so he'd say, oh, well, you would want to buy a pigeon for sacrifice, you know? And then, uh, so you'd buy a bird and then you'd head into the temple. Now, something kind of devious, though, started to take place. For your offering to be accepted, it had to be approved by the priests. And what the priests had started to do is they had started to basically uh, create a structure that made it almost impossible for you to make an offering that was acceptable according to the priests. So when you bring your pigeon that you bought out in the, you know, on the way into Jerusalem, you bring your pigeon to the priest and the priest would then be so, uh, would scrutinize your offering so detailed that he'd find any little defect and then he'd reject your offering. So if maybe there was a feather out of place or a feather that was missing or something, you know, was discolored, right? It didn't have the same coloring on, on one part. He'd say, sorry, this is not a perfect offering. It's not eligible to be sacrificed to the Lord, even though that's the very best you had to offer. And then the priest would say, well, it's unfortunate. You can't make an offering because your offering isn't good enough, but you can go over and buy one of our pre-approved birds. We pre-approved these ones. These are the premium birds. And when you go over there to have to buy another bird, what you'd find is the price was two, three, four times as much as what you could buy outside of the temple. But the priests were rejecting those, forcing you to have to buy something from inside of the temple. And now all of a sudden, there were many poor people who just simply could not afford to make an offering. But let's just say you could afford to purchase that bird. So you go to the cashier to buy the temple bird that's pre-approved. And when you get there, they look at the money that you bring them and they said, oh, I'm sorry, we won't accept your money. That's outside of the temple money. That's ungodly, worldly money. We don't take that here because we don't want to be tainted by the money of the world or the money of your people or the money of your culture. We don't want that. So you'll have to go over to the money changers. You'll have to go over there and they'll exchange the money into temple money, money that then is uh, acceptable to us and usable for us. And of course, there's a fee associated with that transaction. Are you starting to see then how the religious leaders were building a pretty good livelihood for themselves on the back of this sacrificial system? They were not making it easier for people to connect with God, but they were actually creating these man-made hurdles that made it far, far more difficult for people to connect with God. And instead of then the temple being a place of meeting, the temple was now facilitating a disconnection from God. There were many people who could not go through all of that. They didn't have the resources to pay all that the, the temple was trying to make them pay. And they couldn't go through all of this. And so many people were being excluded from being able to connect with God. In fact, what's tremendously sad about this whole thing is that this action ultimately revealed that the spiritual leaders at the temple didn't even really care about people. They didn't care if you couldn't bring your offering. They didn't care if it created hardship for you and your family. They didn't care if because we robbed you of twice as much, uh, you know, because we made you... Uh, 
buy our pigeons and made you change your money and now we got money out of the money changers. We don't care if we absorbed all that resources for ourselves and then you had headed home and didn't have money for your family and your livelihood. They didn't care about that. They didn't even care that these people were excluded from being able to worship and connect with the God who loved them and it ultimately set that whole thing in place to connect with them. Some of you guys just even hearing that story kind of get, you know, upset about it. It's wrong. It's wrong to do that to people, especially if the mission behind the temple was to facilitate everyone connecting with God. And when the priests instead made it harder, you can understand then why Jesus went in there and he cleaned house. He drove them out. He was not willing to allow the temple to just stay in that state of disrepair. Now, are you starting to see the connections then with the function of the house of God and this idea of my house shall be a house of prayer? It is ultimately because prayer at its very basic understanding is a connection point with God. The very first point in this message is that prayer is the place where our lives connect with God. Now, many times we think about prayers like we're closing our eyes, we're bowing our head, you know, we're asking God for things. That is a part of prayer, but it's not all of prayer. Prayer at its very basic is that you've just connected with God. That you've come into this place, like Jesus is saying, look, this temple should be a place where people can come and connect with God. To, to, to pray, to let their lives and God's life intersect. That should be happening in the church regularly and often. That's why worship is a part of that, right? When we sing songs, we're, we're giving you an opportunity to get your eyes on God and to allow his spirit and your spirit to connect together. When we read the, when Michael read that passage from 1 Peter today, right? It's an opportunity for you to take the word of God and the things that God would speak to us and to listen to it and allow it to intersect with our life. When we took time to ask God for things, to speak the name of Jesus over our community, to pray for our churches, to pray for those we know that have need, right? We're asking God for things, but that's just a place where our needs then intersect the supernatural power of God in our life. Hopefully, everything we're doing here today is in the posture of helping people connect with God. That's what it means to be a house of prayer. It's not just a church that we all close our eyes and we bow our heads and we, the whole time, all we do is we ask God for things. That's, that's a narrow view. Now, we need to do more of that. We do. But that's not all the house of prayer would entail the house of prayer is that are we helping people connect with God? That ultimately is the call. Now, here's the real fun stuff. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, Paul is, is writing to the Corinthian church, and he's actually he's, he's addressing issues of sexual immorality. And he's kind of said, look, you guys have got some sexual uh, sin in your midst, and you guys need to stop it. You need to knock it off. You need to repent and get rid of it. And then here's what he says in verse 19 through 20. He says, Do you not know 
that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, keep in mind that we've been talking about the tent of meeting, the tabernacle of meeting, the temple of meeting. And now, Paul here, writing to the believers in Corinth, and what does he say? Do you not know that you yourselves, that your bodies are, what's the word? A temple. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Where is the Holy Spirit? Paul says it directly. It's in you. Where did we receive this Holy Spirit? Whom you receive from God. It'd be easier. Yeah, maybe it's up there on the screen. Now, I know how weird that sounds. That God's Spirit somehow is inside of me as a believer. That God somehow put His Spirit inside of me. And that I am now a temple of the Holy Spirit. Anybody else wrestling with that idea? It's a challenging thought. Now, the reason it's a challenging thought is because it's just outside the realm of natural thinking. The great problem is that we in our world have been, in our culture especially, but we have been conditioned to discount everything that's supernatural and to only think in a natural way that there's natural explanations for everything. Just this week, I heard about a guy who, to be quite honest with you, we've been praying for, praying for, praying for, and had a supernatural recovery, kind of a unexplainable. The doctors are like, oh, wow. And do you know what instantly kind of swept into my mind? No, maybe it was the medicine finally kicked in, Right? We always have been conditioned to kind of press ourselves into this natural framework where the only thing that matters and the only thing that really exists is what we can see, feel, touch, taste, all of the things that are in our natural world. And we've been conditioned to think that the supernatural realm is for crazy people. And that's where weird people live, you know, that they believe in that kind of stuff. Now, here's the thing. Second point, you are always going to struggle with prayer if you can't embrace the supernatural nature of our existence. You are always going to struggle with prayer if you can't embrace the supernatural nature of our existence because, well, to be honest with you, here's the thing, prayer is a supernatural act. And if you have a hard time wrestling around with the fact that there's a supernatural existence that's beyond ourselves, beyond this world, then to be quite honest with you, it makes no sense to pray if you only think of the natural. We have to understand that there is a supernatural out there, but our culture wants to try to push us away from that. Let's just take creation really quickly. The Bible is very clear that Everything in the universe, including our world and us as human beings, we exist because God created it. 
The Bible is very clear that there is a supernatural origin of this universe. Now, mankind doesn't like the idea of supernatural origin. In fact, if you, uh, Richard Dawkins, a very famous atheist, uh, has gone out, gone out of his way to say there is no way that God could be the origin of our universe. Now, he is more than willing to consider that our universe was created by aliens, that life was somehow seated on this planet from uh, these intelligent beings from other universes or dimensions, but he, he will not even think that it's possible that there's a supernatural entity that influenced the natural world. What do we teach our kids about the origin of the universe in our schools? Well, we teach them that the Big Bang Theory. We don't even call it a Big Bang, hy Big Bang Hypothesis or a Big Bang Idea or a Big Bang Guess. But to be honest with you, that'd be more appropriate. If you don't know what the Big Bang Theory is, if you go to Google it, and then you search past all the television show references for the Big Bang Theory, and then you get to the scientific ones, you'll find that the Big Bang Theory is that at one point, all the matter in the universe, all the space, time, and matter that makes up the entire universe that the, the uh, Hubble telescope kind of gave us a glimpse into, and then there's this uh, James Webb telescope now that's given us like even greater clarity into the bigness and the vastness of our universe, right? We, we can't even fathom how big our galaxy is, and we're just one galaxy of, you know, thousands, maybe billions and trillions of galaxies in our world, right? But that all of that was somehow squished down into a small dot, smaller than the size of a period on a page. That literally is what they believe. Now, how many of you guys think that I would be in the right mind of rational thinking if I told you, hey guys, we're going to take our church, the entire building, all of its mass, all of its contents, and we're just going to compress it down into a small little dot, and, uh, and it's going to get so small, we're going to compress it with such force down into a tiny dot smaller than the period on a page. Any of you guys think I'm thinking rationally in that moment? Probably not. And yet somehow we kind of throw out this idea that science would say it's okay. Science would say we could figure it out. But most of us would look at that and go, that's crazy talk. That's crazy thinking. It requires just as much faith as believing that there's a supernatural entity that spoke the world into existence because he has all power and he has all authority and he is all-knowing and, and has all truth, right? It, it, it's no different than believing that. So guys, don't let the culture push you out of believing that there is a supernatural force in our world that cares about us, that loves us, and wants to connect with you and be a part of answering the requests that you bring to him because he knows you have need and he wants to impact your life. And that God of the universe dwells inside of you. And if you have a supernatural worldview, then that's not such a crazy thing to believe. In fact, it actually fits inside of everything that we know about what God has been doing in mankind from the very beginning. God wants a relationship with us. He wants to meet with us. 
Now, here's the real fun thing when we get into, uh, man, we better get moving here. Hebrews chapter 4. In Hebrews chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews in verse 14 through 16 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we possess. Let's stop there for a moment. Who has a great high priest? We do. Now, if you're kind of new to church and new to this, uh, you know, kind of spiritual thing, the Bible thing, in the Old Testament, inside of the temple, who facilitated the connection between God and the people? Who was it? It was the priests. The priest would show up and they would facilitate people's offerings, people's sacrifices, people's worship. The priests were all about, they existed to help people connect with God. The writer of Hebrews says, we have one of those. Now, not only are we, remember, keep this in mind, we are what? We are temples of the Holy Spirit. God has given us the Holy Spirit and he dwells in us. It's a gift from God. But what do we also have? We have a great high priest that is Jesus Christ. And what is Jesus Christ doing? He is facilitating our connection with God the Father. Let's keep reading. Verse 15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. But listen to the results now of what the high priest does for us. Because we have this high priest, verse 16, let us then, right? Because we have this high priest, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. What can we do now because we have a high priest? We can connect with the Father. We can connect with God. And we can come to his throne with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace and find grace to help us in our time of need. Well, what does that sound like? Well, that sounds like we've just made some requests of the Father. That sounds like we've just prayed to the Father. That sounds like we've just brought our needs and our helplessness and our hopelessness and all of that, and we brought it to the throne of grace. And guess what? The Father connected with us. The, the Father responded to our need. And who facilitated all of that? Jesus, our great high priest. Now, do you understand when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life? No one comes to the Father except through me. What did the people of Israel have to do to connect with God? They had to come to the priest. The priest facilitated that connection. What do we have to do? We have to come to Jesus. Jesus is our connection point to the Father. So I'm going to throw a little summary statement up on the screen. In the first service, some people jumped up and, you know, snapped a picture of it. I know it's probably a lot if you're taking notes to try to write down, but I would encourage you to hang on to this because this kind of a little theology statement, sum it up nice and neat, but here's what it says. This is kind of a summary of everything we've talked about. Here we go. As Christians, we are what? Temples of the Holy Spirit. And thus we are, in a very tangible way, houses of prayer. 
All right, does this make sense? So our lives are houses of prayer. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, because of Jesus, we now not only have the Holy Spirit within us as a gift, so it's not only that we have the Holy Spirit in us, but through Jesus, we also now have access to God's throne of grace, which we can now approach in the name and the authority of our great high priest, Jesus, that we can receive the mercy and grace we need when we need it. Did we catch all that? We are temples of the Holy Spirit. We have a great high priest in Jesus Christ. He gives us access to come then with confidence, not fearful, not scared, not unsure, but we can come to him and say, well, because of Jesus, Jesus said, I can ask. (laughs) Because of Jesus, he's given me opportunity to share my need with you, God and ask for you to respond. Because of Jesus, I can ask for forgiveness. Because of Jesus, I can ask for help. Because of Jesus, I can come to you for the grace and the mercy that I need. Okay? So now, I want to shift. That's kind of the theological framework for us. I want to shift now into the practical realm. How do we then become better at praying individually? How do we become houses of prayer in our lives. I'm going to throw out three things and I'm going to go really quick because we don't have a ton of time to unpack this. But number one is we have to, if we're going to be better at prayer, we've got to schedule prayer into our life. Just put it on your calendar. I know that sounds tremendously unspiritual um, and it seems like so, uh, you know, more technical in nature. But here's the thing. We make time and space in our lives for the things that we value. We do. Some of you put gym time on your calendar. Some of you put lunch with coworkers on your calendar. You know, for business, you, there's certain things that you don't want to miss, you don't want to be late for, you don't want to, you know, overlook. So you work that into your calendar. Well, why not prayer? If prayer is a priority for you, maybe you've got to work that and just put it in your calendar. I've got a plan for this. It's not going to just naturally happen. So work it in. A few days ago, I was out of town. I've been traveling all week. I was in Bozeman on Friday morning. But you know what? I knew I had to be back into town by Friday afternoon because there was something on my calendar that had to be uh, given priority. I'll give you a, I have a video record of that event from Friday night. Here it is. A little daddy-daughter date. It was a daddy-daughter dance at Metal Arm Elementary. My daughter was mortified when I pulled out my phone and started taking a selfie video of us. You could see her looking around like, who's watching us? And, uh. But you know what? I wasn't going to miss that. It was priority to me. I put it on my calendar. I made sure I didn't overschedule things. If we're going to pray, don't be afraid to put it on your calendar. In fact, one of the places where you can put it on your calendar is this Friday night. We have this upper room uh, prayer night. The auditorium is going to be open for you anytime between 6 o'clock and 8.30 
uh, whatever fits inside your calendar, your schedule or whatever, schedule it up. Say, I'm going to come at seven. I'm just going to come. I'm going to pray for 15 minutes. I'm going to pray for 30 minutes. I'm going to give God an hour from seven to eight or whatever. Put it on your calendar. The second thing that I just throw out at you is we've got to figure out how to work prayer into the rhythm of our life. And when I say that, what I'm really suggesting is that we find ways to get prayer into the everyday things that we do. One of those things that I'm uh, starting to do is I'm starting to uh, just let myself go into prayer before I even open my eyes in the morning. You know, there's always that weird place where you, where you know you're awake, but you still want to be kind of asleep. And you haven't quite, you know, made the commitment, or maybe it's that gap between your snooze, you snooze hits, and and then you you kind of hit snooze, and you you kind of wait for that nine minutes until it goes off again, but you know you're not sleeping, you're just kind of laying there waiting to go to sleep. And I've just started to allow myself to start praying right there, like before I've even opened my eyes in the morning, just start going, okay, God, what do I know that I need your help with this today? Uh, what do I know that? Uh, people in my life that you just bring to mind. I'll pray right here, right now, before I even get out of bed. It's been kind of a cool thing. I pray uh, a lot more than you think before I even get out of bed. It's a good excuse to stay in bed. I'm praying. I started praying while I'm driving. I'm alone. I'll start. I just turn off my radio. I'll turn off the the music. We 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 sometimes have trouble with the. The, the quiet time, so sometimes just shut the radio off, be quiet, and just talk to God while I'm driving. I did that this morning while we were driving to church with my son. I said, hey, you want to pray for church and all that stuff as we go? And so my son Peyton and I, as we were driving, we prayed for the church, prayed for all this stuff this morning. Maybe there's just times in your life where you can just start bringing God to the forefront and connect with him. Just allow yourself to connect with him. That's what prayer is. That's why Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians, pray continually. Just stay in this place of communion and union with God at every moment. There was a guy named Brother Lawrence who wrote a book called Practicing the Presence of God. And he actually worked on this. He was a monk back in the 1600s. I got a little picture of him. I think this might be the only picture there is of, of him. Somebody kind of sketched him out. But back in the 1600s, he just committed himself to try to realize that God's presence was with him all the time. And it transformed his life. It transformed his attitude. It transformed everything. It just maintained that connection with God. So work prayer into the rhythm of your life. And then the last thing I'll say is this, and then and we'll close. And I don't think we'll get to the, the final song again, but we'll, we'll do it. Don't be afraid to ask God for specific things. When you do go go to God and ask for things, don't be afraid to ask him for specific things. Be specific in your prayers. You know, oftentimes I think, hey, I'm praying for you. Well, what are you praying for me? Uh, I mean, I don't know. (laughs) You just kind of want God to, you know, like you. And, you know, (laughs) have you asked God to like me, right? What are you asking for anything specific Or am I just really thinking thoughts about you toward God? (laughs) Is that it? Is it okay for you to ask for very specific things? I would say, yes, you should be asking for very specific things. Otherwise, you don't really believe that God's going to do anything. 
David in Psalm 5, verse 3, said this, In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you. And then what does he do after he prays? What does it say? He waits expectantly. What is he expecting? God to answer his prayer. How would he know that God answered his prayer if he hadn't asked for very specific things? Guys, when we pray, if you want somebody to be healed, pray for their healing. Don't be afraid to pray for someone's healing. Pray for it. If you want a relationship to be restored, pray that that relationship would be restored. If you have a need for provision or whatever, ask God for it. Be specific about what you need from God. The worst thing that can happen is that God would say no. And that doesn't mean he doesn't love you. In fact, believe it or not, God told Jesus no one time to one of Jesus' prayers. And we know that God loved Jesus. And if Jesus can hear no from the Father, so can you and I. When Jesus was in the garden and said, God, if there's any way this cup could pass from me. But what was Jesus' posture? Not my will, but yours be done. When we go to prayer, let's ask for very specific things, but let's first say we want your will, not just ours. Your will first. And I will surrender my request. I will surrender my desires to the larger, grander plan that you have in this universe, in this world. But that doesn't stop us from asking, even if God might say no. My kids ask me for a donut every single Sunday morning. I say no a lot. It doesn't stop them from asking. And they don't just ask generally, well, Dad, I'm kind of hungry. Would you meet my needs? No, they ask specifically, will you buy me that chocolate donut that has sprinkles on it, please? It's okay for us to pray specifically. Let's courageously ask. Don't be afraid if God says, no, it's okay. Sometimes God has bigger plans. But you'll never see God say yes if you don't ask. In James it says, you do not have because you do not ask. And man, I think there's probably a lot of things we miss out on in our life because we haven't asked God specifically for it. Pray specifically. Guys, uh, let's pray. And let's just ask that God will help us to be people of prayer people whose lives regularly and consistently connect with God. Father, your grace and your mercy is great to us. You love us. You care for us. We thank you that you desire to connect with us and that you paved a way for that connection through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. So we come to you in faith, And we ask and pray specifically that you would help us to become a house of prayer. Help us to be people of prayer. Help us to be families of prayer. And we ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.